Welcome to CSIT. In today's episode, we're going to be covering Libya, and with us today is going to be Jalil uh, Hashawi. Our, I mispronounced his name for the first time, so that's why I'm taking this again. And um, he is a research fellow at the Kligendal Institute in The Hague, and I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I thought we'd just begin with a quick introduction into what Libya looks like today. So I thought you might uh, it would be best to introduce the the government of National Accord and the House of Representatives government. Uh, how do they differ, and why do we have two two governments in Libya? Well, in general, I would say that the the conflict currently unfolding uh, and drawing attention from the international press. In many ways, uh, the conflict per se uh, began uh, on the 15th of February 2011. So um, the grievances and uh, tendencies and different uh, worldviews have been clashing roughly um, based on the same um, thrust, if you will, uh, although at a much smaller scale uh, since uh, more than uh, nine years ago. And um, and and the uh, the two governments that you're uh, talking about uh, popped up basically in uh, two separate years. One, the uh, House of Representatives uh, was created effectively in um, in late summer of 2014, and um, it was at the end of a, of an, an election, uh, legislative uh, election that uh, received only a small amount of um, of uh, voter participation and one reason is because first of all because of the tension but also because um, a military campaign uh, had begun on uh, the 16th of May of 2014 so even before the legislative uh, elections and the person who decided to launch that uh, offensive at the time was uh, General Haftar retired General Haftar. And um, what he did effectively was uh, initiate a, a military operation against uh, some um, pretty tough, very tough uh, Islamist militias in, uh, in Benghazi. And at the same time, he had allies uh, do something much more political against the uh, then already rump government called the General National Congress uh, in Tripoli. So uh, when when people say the HOR, they basically talk about a political entity that uh, appeared for the first time in the east of the country, in Tobruk at the time, because of uh, of a war that had uh, really been quite nasty in uh, in July of 2014. So um, <clears throat> you people should not imagine that everybody in the East uh, comes from the same background and not everybody is militarized the same way. You have this thing that began in, uh, in May 2014 and then you have uh, a political entity that's supposed to be legitimate, supposed to be the result of uh, free and fair elections that appeared not, not in the capital but in the East. And they were not necessarily in line. Uh, they didn't know each other particularly well or didn't, were not ready to recognize each other. Um, the, the important factor here is uh, this military campaign effectively that began in mid-May 2014 has never stopped ever since. It just moved geographically. Uh, the Benghazi battle turned out to be very, very long 
more than three years, very destructive, and uh, and you can argue that it had a very strong political component. What I mean is that different politics would have given rise to a different way of addressing what was presented as a strictly security problem in Benghazi. It could have been less destructive. It could have involved more compromise. And uh, if it had been that way, it would have been less useful for an opportunistic uh, figure like uh, uh, Haftar. So, and, and in the West, effectively, because of this trauma, of what happened in, uh, in, in, in the summer of 2014, there was very strong involvement on the part of um, uh, the United States at the time under Barack Obama, Britain before Brexit, uh, Italy uh, before uh, far-right populism, uh, the help of Algeria at the time also diplomatically speaking, and this big push that began effectively in early 2015 turned out to uh, be relatively successful, not quite, and the not quite will have repercussions. Uh, it effectively allowed the creation by the United Nations of a, general, uh, of a, of a government called the Government of National Corps. Uh, that was declared in January 2016 and showed up physically in Tripoli in uh, in March 2016. And, uh, and of course, um, this was an opportunity because it was effectively uh, a collection of more moderate uh, voices and it could have been seized as an opportunity, but uh, the, the, the House of Representatives uh, immediately changed its tune vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, uh, the United Nations before and after the signature, um, which, me which meant that instead of embracing this structure that was effectively, it had been built par uh, partly in order to please uh, the, the figures in, and the factions in the East in order to create uh, somewhat of a, of a consensus. But what was chosen by the East was to continue the military campaign. So what I'm trying to say is that at the end, the military campaign that uh, began in, uh, in mid-May 2014 has never stopped and it has uh, affected, distorted, shaped politics because it always gave this impression to whoever was against the Islamists that uh, brute force was uh, a very viable uh, option and you could achieve a lot of things politically if you just uh, jump on the bandwagon and, 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 and use the, um, the, the, the brutality of, 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 uh, of something that could have been managed. Um, I'm not saying it, the things could all have been resolved politically necessarily, but it could have involved less force. And um, this military campaign took a beating um, in May, June of this year, just uh, four or five weeks ago, and it got crushed. It didn't get crushed uh, nationally, but it definitely got crushed in uh, the area of Tripoli. And uh, the big event... Uh, in recent memory, was um, April 2019, when this military creature uh, led by Marshal Haftar in the east decided to go west by 1,000 kilometers and conduct an attack. Uh, because at the end of the day, it was technically an attack. It was a, a, an attempt to seize power, to penetrate the downtown area of a very populous uh, capital um, if it had managed to enter, because it never did, if it had managed to enter, it would have waged an urban war for a while inside Tripoli and um, 
the hope for, for them was to um, capture the city and then install the government that they would have uh, found much more adequate and, and more satisfactory from their perspective. And of course, uh, all of this uh, failed, and it failed in a very visible way as a result of uh, largely uh, this um, Turkish decision to conduct a, uh, an overt, uh, full-blown, official, visible uh, intervention, uh, which is not entirely conventional, uh, but it was at least uh, overt. And, uh, and now, basically, the, uh, the, the armed coalition of the eastern-based uh, Marshal Haftar is back into the east, and uh, the tension currently in Libya has to do with this decision, which will be made by force again. Unfortunately, uh, the decision of where the West, be- where the West uh, ends, and where the East begins, and uh, all the tension is currently not all, but most of it concentrated in this uh, coastal city uh, called uh, Sirte. Uh, it's not very big. It's not very um, necessarily very strategic, but it happens to be in the middle. And uh, and we don't know how it's going to play out. Maybe uh, the Turkish-backed government of National Corps of Tripoli will be able to take it by force. Maybe it will fail. Maybe it will turn into a quagmire. Maybe uh, some uh, breakthrough, uh, diplomatic breakthrough, will make it possible to avoid this battle of cert and somehow find a, an economic uh, or unpolitical uh, deal that will avoid uh, further bloodshed. But it's a very high moment of uncertainty, and uh, a lot of people, when they saw the the, the defeat of Marshal Haftar uh, on the 5th of June of this year, just a few weeks ago, uh, they thought it was like uh, a drastic uh, outcome, and and it was going to be the end of it. And in fact, we're we're far away from from the end of uh, of the Libyan civil war, because it's such a a vast uh, country with uh, so much wealth, and and it's important to um, to so many countries. Uh, although although there is a tradition among uh, Western countries to that consists in never considering. Uh, Libya is important, right? So if you're a young diplomat in uh, in uh, in London or, or or Paris or Washington, you you know you don't consider that uh, Libya is a prestigious country because it's the tradition, as I said, consists in always pretending that it's not important. So the West was never able to decide whether or not Libya was important. I think you covered quite a lot of uh, what I <laughs> what I wanted to talk about, uh, which is fantastic. So thank you, thank you for this. Um, you you brought up something that I wanted to ask at the end, um, and that was the prospects, because at the moment we have, um, as you say, that is the the front lines are around Sirte and the 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 airbase, um, the Jufra airbase, yeah, yeah. um, and um, the, the, that's where things are a bit unclear. Turkey seems to have backed the GNA to, uh, at one point in any case, I'm not sure if this is the reality today, but to, to go forward yeah. uh, for uh, economic reasons, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, w- what seems to have happened is that it has kind of uh, fizzled out a little bit. And uh, from from some imagery that I saw today, it seems like uh, Russia's back in the game and they seem to be redeploying some assets to, to Sirte. 
Um, but but this is what I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, because you mentioned that there might be a possibility of some sort of uh, ceasefire agreement or some deal that they could be mutually beneficial in some way. But but could that lead to de facto partition that, that is kind of a Republic of uh, Serenica and Fezzan under the LNA and a re Republic of Tripolitania under the GNA? Well, I wouldn't use the word uh, Republic because that would mean that it's more no, than, than de facto partition. It would be in uh, like a South Sudan 2011 kind of situation if you start talking about Republic of Tripolitania. Yeah. And a de jure partition would be a catastrophe for Turkey. Like you brought up Turkey very correctly. Uh, Turkey cannot live with a de jure partition because then it will lose uh, one of the main, probably the principal motivation, not the only one, the principal motivation for Turkey's invention is uh, has to do with all the natural gas that was discovered under the sea in the Mediterranean over the last uh, ten years. So it's a it's a huge amounts of wealth uh, that nobody knew about uh, ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, that that explains a lot of uh, a lot of the um, apparent aggressiveness of of Turkey, but it's a, a rational rational form of of aggressiveness. Like if if you had been Turkey, you would probably have. Uh, look for ways to, to find a way. You would have looked for ways to grab a piece of that wealth and you wouldn't necessarily just sit on your, uh, uh, on your derriere waiting for, for Greece and, and other people taking advantage of that wealth because, as I said, it's, uh, it's a part of the, of the Mediterranean Sea that had already uh, unresolved uh, disputes uh, even before this discovery. But the bottom line is that um, if, you, if you create, um, if, you cre if you provoke uh, a de jure partition of Libya, then uh, Turkey would have would would basically uh, be defeated in its plans because uh, the whole idea is essentially being able to uh, claim and, and take as a starting point the territorial waters uh, located off of uh, the eastern part of of Libya, and then from there um, continue to claim the entire. Um, corridor called uh, the exclusive economic zone uh, that comes very 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 close to Crete and uh, and that's important because it allows you to understand why Greece is so angry and and, and running into uh, running into France to to ask for help but uh, so I insist on the difference between de jure and de facto de facto I mean I personally I don't think it's a big deal because uh, just a few weeks ago you've had uh, you know, uh, multiple civilians dying every day, and uh, and anything that will allow some kind of uh, reduction of this violence. And and by the way, Turkey has achieved this kind of uh, reduction in violence because there's a smaller amount of civilians being killed every day today post uh, uh, Turkish intervention compared to before. So um, if it's de facto and it looks like a, a federal kind of setup. And, and it's the same passport on both sides and it's roughly the same currency on both sides and the financial system doesn't collapse altogether and uh, oil production resumes. I would like to remind you that oil production has been blocked by Marshal Haftar and his friends uh, since uh, mid-January of this year. Uh, so de facto for me is not, uh, it's not the end of the world. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in the level of violence, level of destruction 
and and of course trying to see if if Turkey continues being involved and and and, and continues being in in the black in terms of its bet. Uh, so what I'm trying to say here is that you you end up understanding why both the government of National Corps in Tripoli and its principal and probably only sponsor Turkey uh, are so deeply interested in going not only taking cert but going beyond cert and grabbing a territory that is located just to the east of cert along the coast and it's called uh, the oil croissant and it's basically a series of terminals uh, that are capable when in peacetime when everything runs smoothly they're capable of exporting more than 600,000 barrels a day and it's top quality oil, uh, deeply, deeply prized uh, by Southern Europe and other other consumers of energy, and uh, and of course, if if Turkey grabs that or or maybe just part of it, then the probability of a du jure partition goes down to zero almost, right? It has this guarantee of, of, of being able to to hold the country together and maybe end up with other political disputes, all, all kinds of sources of tension, but at least they will sleep okay at night knowing that, uh, that the mm. East cannot break away and, and doesn't become the Republic of Cyrenaica that you were mentioning. Um, if it does manage to not only grab CERT and go beyond CERT and grab those uh, additional hundreds of kilometers to the East of CERT and, and, and seize uh, control over the oil croissant, then it will have the physical guarantee then that the eastern part of Libya, Cyrenaica, will not be able to achieve autonomy from an economic perspective, which means effectively that uh, we would be ideally, at least according to Turkey, back to the negotiation table. Turkey and its friend, uh, the government of Tripoli, would be in a position of strength and they would hammer out uh, some kind of an economic uh, deal. But in all cases, the uh, Libya remains in one piece and there's no chance of, uh, of seeing this... Uh, creation of a, a Republic of uh, Cyrenaica, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and which means that the maritime game of, of Turkey remains on and, uh, and, and you will be able to uh, not only uh, explore uh, the territorial waters of Libya, but also bother Greece and, and be able to uh, act as, uh, as a bully, effectively, to force Greece to uh, revive some of the conversations that, uh, that Turkey wants to revisit. So it's really, really strategic. Um, and that's the reason. It's, it's basically more than the oil, right? So what I'm saying is that it could have gone, like the government of Tripoli could have gone south, and there's a lot of, uh, of oil in the south, but it neglected the south because it doesn't have that maritime dimension to it. Uh, it has a lot of wealth to to help uh, Tripolitania become more um, viable and, and autonomous economically, but it does. It's not enough for Turkey. Turkey really needs to be aggressive. So when you said that things were unclear, uh, you were right. Things are unclear for everybody. Uh, nobody knows the answer to this uh, suspense that we are uh, experiencing. Turkey doesn't know. Russian doesn't know. Egypt doesn't know. No one knows how it's going to play out. And uh, I would call it uh, almost like a radical uncertainty kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I like the term radical uncertainty, uh, even though in, in effect it means horrible, horrible things. Um, but you, you mentioned three of the actors here. You mentioned Turkey, Russia and uh, Egypt. And of course, they're the ones that are visible. Um, but but one of the actors that isn't as visible is the UAE and Mohammed uh, bin Zayed, and uh, the decision making there for me is is in part 
it's obvious that the the Gulf states with MBZ and MB, uh, and uh, and Saudi um, are, are trying to balance against Turkey in some respects. But what is un what's unclear is the end game. I I'm wondering about the end game for MBZ in Libya. What what would UAE want out of a deal? Yeah. In Libya. Uh, first of all, it doesn't want a deal. Uh, it doesn't want to talk to anybody, <laughs> okay. and it's not balancing against uh, Turkey necessarily. There was no Turkey. Uh, there was almost no trace of Turkish influence in uh, in Western Libya in March 2019. See, I'm not going back uh, very far into the past. February, March 2019, Turkey was no way, or shape, or form in a position to even dream of the Maritime Accord. Nobody in the Tripoli government would have even uh, considered even looking at it. Um, there was no flow of weapons. That's, uh, that's substantial enough to, to even mention. Uh, there was no... All the um, uh, hardline Islamist Libyans uh, that were in exile in, in Istanbul were, were afraid of coming back to Tripoli. Uh, now they're not afraid, of course, at all anymore. Uh, you can imagine. So the, if you take a snapshot of uh, of Libya, or Western Libya, I should say, in early 2019, it was very close to what you would like uh, if you were uh, someone who's obsessed with uh, any kind of strength on the part of uh, political Islam, for instance, or uh, if you really, really don't like uh, President Erdogan and his... Uh, and his Republic of Turkey. So you have something that's already looking much better than Libya in 2017 or 2015, for instance. So the, the trend, if you imagine a diagram of the amount of political Islam or the amount of Turkish influence or the amount of radical Islamism, all those curves were, were basically uh, going downward. And still, a decision was made uh, by one individual, by the name of Khalifa Haftar, to uh, resort to brute force and try to to go and, and win, win Tripoli, as I said earlier. And um, immediately, uh, the Emirati state, uh, which was not pushing for this, by the way, it was not pushing for such a brutal solution. Uh, but once uh, Haftar create this uh, fait accompli situation, they immediately started helping him. And this is, what I'm, what I'm referring to is really a military intervention. Um, it was effectively a fleet of uh, Chinese-made drones that uh, started uh, bombing uh, the, uh, the area of Tripoli on a daily basis. They conducted, so the Emirati state, I'm not, I'm not talking about helping Haftar, I'm talking about the Emirati state being present physically on Libyan soil and flying uh, combat drones to conduct roughly 1,000 airstrikes between April 2019 and December 2019. I'm including also a bunch of, like a series of uh, airstrikes conducted by fighter jets that took off, so Emirati fighter jets taking off from Western Egypt and bombing the, the Tripoli and, and Misrata areas. So this is a military intervention that began before Turkey, right? It began weeks before Turkey sent its first combat drone. Uh, that happened effectively in early June or, or late May. So this this event, you will never be able to... First of all, it's documented, 
right? Among anybody who watches Libya, it's not even a controversy. Mm. It's a it's a big event, yeah. right? Uh, if if the Emirates were to do the same in Norway or, or Denmark, you would call it a military intervention. But uh, if you ask a French official, they would deny it. They would even not even an answer. They would look at at you with staring at you and and not not even dignify your question with a with an answer. And you have roughly the same fear. Uh, in Washington, maybe not as much as as France, which is absolutely obsessed with this idea of behaving like an unconditional groupie of of the Emirates, but you do have something similar going on in in many other Western capitals: um, uh, Washington, uh, Berlin, you know, you name it. So uh, this mm-hmm. event is absolutely crucial if you want to understand uh, why you're having such a such a festival of international anarchy. Uh, being manifested uh, in this uh, in this country located uh, just hundreds of kilometers away from the European Union. If people want to understand why Russia is much more visible now, why Turkey mm. is actually conducting a 19th century kind of protectorate type inv- intervention uh, just hundreds of kilometers away from, from Italy, if you, people who want to understand this, they need to acknowledge that one military intervention, completely clandestine, completely illegal, and 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 nasty too. I mean, it killed a lot of, killed a you know a certain amount of of, of civilians, uh, and hit civilian infrastructure. And and if it were documented properly, then we would realize that it's really ugly. That event is absolutely uh, essential if you want to understand what happened after. After uh, this this thing started, which which it did in April two thousand nineteen, I'm not even mentioning the flow, the logistical flow of supplies, uh, in violation of the embargo, hundreds of of cargo flights and and, and billions spent uh, to 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 propel to boost uh, a military intervention that was effectively technically an aggression uh, against a a large city. Um, so I'm not saying the population of Tripoli was all deeply enthusiastic about the government of National Accor. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a popular government. It wasn't at the time. And I, I spoke to you know, Tripoli people when I was there. And, and of course, there was a lot of, you know, more, I would say at least 50% of, of the people in downtown Tripoli that were kind of sympathetic with, with Haftar. But it doesn't matter. All of this was illegal. Uh, it ended up creating uh, 200,000 uh, internally displaced people. Uh, it killed the, the whole operation, which ended uh, on the 5th of June. Overall, killed roughly 8,000 Libyans. Probably more than 10% of that was uh, civilians. So it's a major ev- mm-hmm. event. And it failed, right? <laughs> it failed. It backfired. Yeah. And, uh, and it gave uh, a fantastic, a golden opportunity for Turkey to achieve a lot of things that it couldn't even dream of before the Emirati decision. So the Emirati action is very important and diplomatic, di- diplomatically uh, it receives uh, absolutely essential help from, uh, from Paris. Yeah, it, I, I have to agree with you. It's hard, hard not to. Um, it, it, mainly on mainly on Paris's um, Paris's uh, way of dealing with it. It's been a bit surprising in in some ways. If you don't know Paris, I think it's a bit surprising. I'm um, I'm not overly acquainted with French foreign policy, so for me, I, it was a bit of a steep learning curve mm-hmm. 
seeing how they acted in terms with uh, of relations with Russia and uh, how fr French um, uh, diplomats have uh, spoken about the UAE interests has been uh, kind of surprising. Uh, I'm guessing not you. You're, yeah, you're, you're technically a Frenchman, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm French and I, I, I not only... I mean, I could have been... I, I could have been, uh, you know, from Costa Rica. Uh, you don't understand these things if you don't work on them as a researcher. So your nationality doesn't matter too much uh, unless you behave like a real scientist. And I try to do that. I try to analyze um, the uh, the French attitude. And a few things need to be uh, to be underscored here. I mean, France is busy, has been busy in the Sahel, militarily speaking, since January 2013. And uh, it's not going well. And it costs uh, roughly 1 billion euros a year. Uh, they've lost uh, several soldiers there. Uh, you have roughly 4,000 uh, uh, French soldiers uh, mobilized uh, over an area as large as India. Uh, so I'm talking about Niger. Yeah. And, and it's going in the wrong direction, right? It's not getting better. It's getting worse and worse. And um, so... Can, can France do more, uh, military sp militarily speaking, beyond the Sahel? I mean, it could do small small missions like it has in, uh, in Iraq and maybe Syria. But, uh, but Libya, in contrast to all of this, appears as a... Especially when, you, when you've sold so many wep like, uh, expensive weapons to the Emiratis and, uh, and to the Egyptians, I would like to recall that uh, the first time France sold its Rafale uh, fighter jet. It was not to India. It was to um, to Egypt, and and the French mm. knew that the money being used by Egypt to buy these things was in large part Emirati. So you have basically the beginning of a of an infatuation of a love story that began uh, in in two thousand fourteen. Um, and so the culture now, because of those years, so you basically have the same mentality for many years. And uh, the mentality is to say, we're at least intervening in the Sahel. We are not going to be able to do the same in Libya ever. Uh, Libya is easy anyway, because uh, the Emirati, our Emirati friends told us that it was going to be easy. But they also asked us to help. And, and after all, we're talking about the very people who, are, who have bought uh, billions and billions of uh, French weaponry, and they're going to do that. They, they're going to uh, order Airbus planes, civilian planes, they're going to do all kinds of stuff. They hate political Islam. We French people have had this history of, of seeing uh, political Islam as a geopolitical threat and also as a domestic threat. Mm. So effectively, you end up idealizing by imagining that uh, the Emirati state, because it spends so easily, because it's so bold, because it violates uh, international law so um, happily, uh, then you say, well, I'm associated with the winner. You know, if all I have to do now is basically protect him, uh, diplomatically speaking, in other Western capitals, uh, behave like a diplomatic watchdog. Uh, you know, if they want me to preserve a taboo, I will make it my uh, mission in life to preserve the taboo. I will believe in the, in the official storytelling and, uh, and I will hope for the best. And that's exactly what France did. And what happened was not the best. It was actually the worst that could have happened from a French perspective, because now you have effectively a Turkish presence that is not going to go away. We have to uh, to basically really digest and process and acknowledge 
the probably a permanent uh, character of this uh, Turkish mission in uh, in Western Libya, with all the African consequences that it has, because Turkey is not going to stop in Libya. Turkey uh, exports a lot of manufactured goods. It has a growing demography, a decent economy, even if it's currently grappling with a crisis. If you look at uh, Africa over the next uh, 15 to 20 years, uh, you know, and near Turkey, you you cannot resist that. You want to be there. And you don't want to be excluded, which would uh, have happened if Haftar had won in Tripoli. So now mm. they made sure they were not going to be excluded, but they're effectively entrenched, entrenched militarily, economically, diplomatically, and politically. Uh, and it's not going to stop there. No. Uh, uh, yet again, I agree with you. But uh, this is what uh, it leads me to the next question, because um, we have... Next door, we've got one of the most important actors. And not, I mean, you've got Tunisia, of course, but you've got Egypt. Yeah. And uh, Egypt is deadly afraid and has expressed that it's deadly afraid of the spread of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood mm -hmm. and uh, getting close to the borders, especially Turkish hard power being close to the border mm -hmm. terrifies it. In, in some, we've recently seen, I mean, this, uh, I'm not sure when people are going to be lis listening, but we've recently seen some uh, sa saddle, you know, sable rattling by CC with uh, visiting the troops on the border, mm -hmm. visiting an airfield that's uh, apparently later on uh, been cleaned in order to be more effective, um, from what I've been told. Yeah. It, it, it seems like Sirta is, it, it, it looks like an existential threat. Yeah. To, uh, to Egypt, yeah, but, but what are the capabilities? I mean, I mean, the, Turkey's military is more modern, but is it able to exert power, project power effectively at uh, those distances? Well, first of all, Turkey and uh, the government in Tripoli are not interested in the eastern part of uh, Cyrenaica, right? Um, it has. Uh, of course, it you know you could build new uh, oil assets if over the next twenty years. But uh, right now, it's it has a lot of population. It doesn't have a lot of uh, strategic assets uh, except access to the sea. Um, and again, I really you know I think you know when we discussed the oil crescent earlier, it was really the piece that um, that Turkey wants. So it's not about going to the border of Egypt, although it could happen over time. But um, Turkey doesn't want to go. Uh, government of Tripoli has no interest. They don't want to take Benghazi. They don't want to take Tobruk. They don't care. Um, the goal is, is really, as you said yourself, take Sirte, take Jufra, and right after Sirte, try to drift uh, uh, inch, inch, inch forward until you grab uh, the uh, oil croissant. And then once they have the oil croissant, they don't even need the, the city of Ajdabiya or the city of, of Benghazi. Um, so... Egypt, okay, so when Egypt talks, you know, which Egypt is talking? This is really a fascinating question because you have two Egypts, right? You have what I would call the, um, the security establishment as, as truly Egyptian, uh, like uh, decades of tradition, um, uh, you know, national security kind of uh, 
preoccupations, uh, memory of the past, memory of a sense of realism. When you when you frequent the 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 armed coalition of of Haftar, you see all of the details, and you you discover as an Egyptian that it's not as competent as it says, as uh, formidable or efficacious as it says. You notice it, right? You, they live next door. Yep. You know them by heart. If you see it's a, it's not it's too frail or not serious enough. And, and you hear that Haftar wants to go and attack Tripoli, you're against it, which is exactly what Egypt uh, said. It said it before mm-hmm. April 2019. It expressed its uh, ferocious opposition to this idea. Why? Because it's selfish. It's rational. Egypt knew very well what was going to happen. You know, uh, Haftar was going to try and, and, and punch above his weight, and then he would have precipitated a quasi-collapse of his uh, of his army, not only in the west, but also would have become very fragile in the east, which is exactly what happened uh, within fourteen months. So Egypt knew that. I mean, they're not as um, they're more experienced than the Emiratis. They have a sense of the past, the sense of, of what it means to to uh, to to launch an, an adventure that is beyond your means, and so and, and in that sense, uh, Egypt is, uh, agrees with Russia a lot on all these things, and Russia thought the same before April 2019. They knew exactly what was going to happen. Not exactly, but they knew it was it was going to be bad news and not very logical. But of course, the reason it did happen is because the Emiratis were very happy to try to give it a, a shot and see what happened, you know, if the pasta was going to stick on the wall. And it didn't. Uh, so now Egypt basically has two faces and two voices. You have this realistic portion that tends to be reasonable doesn't want to go um, doesn't want to go into Libya officially doesn't want to come into contact uh, physically with the uh, with the government of national uh, core forces and even less with with Turkey itself doesn't want doesn't want trouble uh, and then you have another one which is uh, very much aware of the genesis of the current regime in, in Cairo who helped shape it and fund it in 2013 and and the subsequent years, it's mainly the Emiratis, uh, with the help of uh, of Saudi Arabia. But uh, you know the reason you've seen so many billions uh, flowing into into Egypt, in starting in two thousand thirteen, two thousand you know all the way to to recently, uh, it's because of of um, this uh, deliberate uh, generosity on the part of uh, of the Emiratis. So what this means effectively is that you need to echo their worldview, speak the words that they would like you to say, and behave in ways that correspond to the regional, not just national, but regional security actor that you're supposed to be. So that's the dilemma in Cairo. And what they're trying to do now is basically strike a happy medium. They cannot do nothing. Right, it would anger the Emiratis. It would also, even forgetting about the Emiratis, it would be a blow to their own reputation. It's supposed to be the largest army in Africa. They're supposed to be the adversary of Turkey. Turkey has done a lot in front of them this year. They haven't done anything to prevent it, and uh, so there's a lot of pressure on Egypt right now. And the temptation would be to try and basically you know, um, come up with some kind, as I said, like a balance between the two. Speak the words that you're supposed to speak, even if you don't think them, even if you don't believe them, mm-hmm. and, and and try to avoid uh, immediate contract, contact or direct contact with uh, with physical forces that you know are better organized and uh, and more ferocious than, uh, than your army, which, I mean, the Egyptian army is not... 
is not a uh, is not specialized in war. It's specialized in economics. It's specialized in corruption. It's specialized in politics. Uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Maybe a little bit of counterterrorism, but uh, but not in a conventional war. And this looks relatively like a conventional war. It does. I mean, it, I I don't know how much we should pay attention to to details like this, but if if you look at um, at least the the rehearsals and presentations that the Egyptian army does, they still do kung fu and uh, jumping through fire hoops and things like this. Um, I I'm not sure that they're technologically or organizationally uh, a match for a, mo a modern military um, like like Turkey. Yeah. But they would have numbers and they would have proximity yeah. and that might. That might do something if they were willing to use it and willing to take that risk. I'm not sure they would. Be. Yeah, I mean, I um, I respect the uh, the Egyptian army. I was not trying to dismiss it. No, of uh, course, it's big, as you said. It ha you have territorial continuity, uh, but but politically, there's no desire. There's no desire to go and start a process that they didn't. Uh, they they. I mean, if Egypt had been pushing Haftar. Uh, of the last uh, year or year, year and a half, then maybe you would have had more momentum politically to say, okay, well, you know, Turkey is is uh, is hurting our our boy. You know, we're going to defend our boy. Mm -hmm. But that that reasoning is completely absent in in Cairo. I mean, Haftar is not even mentioned anymore. They hate him. He was. I mean, they basic. He basically single handedly created a nightmare for those people. Uh, and they were saying roughly the same thing even before April 2019. And this is very, very important for your listeners. So this tells you, you know, and I think one message that I would like to kind of push here is when you start dreaming of defeating an idea, which is political Islam, and it's not, I'm not talking about the radical version, because the, the characteristic of the Emirati worldview is uh, is really hatred for moderate political Islam. That's the, the characteristic. So when you talk to them, when you say, oh, this political Islam proponent happens to be moderate, they will say, well, he's just a, a radical in the making. And he's in disguise. And wait, give it a couple of years, and you'll see you'll have Daesh. Okay? So this is really uh, uh, this, the signature, if you will, the specialty, uh, ideologically speaking, uh, of Abu Dhabi. And uh, because of its, um, the diplomatic protection that it receives from Western capitals, all of them, and uh, because of its, uh, of course, uh, financial wherewithal, we ended up having this uh, tendency, uh, seeing this tendency of actually using brute force to do what? To defeat uh, moderate political Islam. And to defeat an idea, you have to destroy a lot of things physically. You really have to display a huge amount of... Uh, destructiveness and violence uh, to get to where you want to be. And where do you want to be? You want to have zero. Okay, So the zero tolerance is actually a phrase that is used quite often by um, Emirati officials. And, uh, and I think we have to think about what it means. It means that you want to enter a city, you want to capture a lot of people, kill a lot of people, torture a lot of people, exile a lot of people, and uh, and you're not done, and, and 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 the work is never done, right? Because it's impossible to, uh, you 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 must be uh, uh, irresponsible militarily speaking in order to achieve something that is profoundly ideological. So having an ideological 
concern or motivation is much more dangerous than having a conventional security uh, concern. Because when you have a conventional security thing, um, then, then when things quiet down, when, when they cool off, you consider it as an improvement. You say, okay, well, I'm getting a little bit closer to calm and all I want is peace and quiet. But this is not at all what, uh, what the rationale is in Abu Dhabi, their um, goal. And they will, I mean, if you, if you read what they say and analyze uh, their discourse, you can demonstrate it and prove it. They basically are at war against a, a moderate form of political Islam. And I don't like moderate political Islam. I'm not defending it. But what I'm saying is that when you, when you start being obsessed with this idea of being able to eradicate uh, an, a political opinion, you must, you know, kill a lot of people. And you end up making decisions that are completely reckless. And this is basically what has happened on the part of the Emirati, but it has also had an effect on the, the behavior of, of Egypt. And Egypt is basically struggling with all these pressures. Uh, and it has other pressures too. I mean, uh, Egypt, even without the Emirates, don't want to see uh, Turkish assertiveness in the west of Libya. But it has happened. Mm. All of these things have happened. So now we have to live with them. Uh, and you cannot wish it away. And so it, the Egyptian mm. de- decision, oh, I'm sorry, the Egyptian dilemma is, is a very unpleasant one. Of course it is, and uh, I think uh, they're going to have to, uh, as you say, deal with the fact that Turkey's there. Turkey's in Somalia. Turkey's probably, I think, they're in Djibouti. Um, they they might be in a lot of new places soon enough. Um, but but that's something that Egypt is going to have to deal with. But I think one thing that I haven't really covered so much, and I, I think it's because it's not as relevant in the, in the big scheme of things, but it's something that is quite interesting, is um, how Syrians play into the, the Libyan dilemma. Because Turkey, at, at one point at least, and I'm not sure how many are still there, but it, it used Syrian, well, I, I hate to use this term mercenaries, but it's probably the most correct term in this case, yeah. Um, and hired them to uh, fight on its behalf yeah. uh, in Libya. Yeah. Uh, how there are roughly eight thousand were they actually eight, seven seven to eight thousand roughly? Okay, so uh, and they would possibly probably be still on the ground most of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, they're not. Um, yeah, they're not going uh, anywhere. Yeah. How crucial were they actually to to manning the front, uh, or and how important were they to to imagery? Uh, well, they helped, um, you know, to be honest with you, when it was announced in December, I thought it was going to be hell to implement, but in terms of execution, the Turks, you have to have it, had it to them. They, they, they pulled it off. There was no major incident. You had like small incidents, you know, like run-ins and arrests and ugly, ugly things, but not major to the point of actually uh, jeopardizing the whole mission. So from a Turkish perspective, it has been a success. And uh, it, was it essential? Uh, no, I don't think it was essential. I think uh, the same mission could have succeeded without the 7,000 or 8,000. Uh, not even half of them were actually mobilized uh, uh, so far. Um, but it's a good strength to have because um, the Tripoli government was squeezed into a very, very small area when Turkey mm. showed up in, uh, in December, right? And, uh, and now they're responsible for a huge area. 
and you need you need uh, you need people and also turkey doesn't trust the libyans necessarily so it's good to be able to have this option of sending like a hybrid force knowing that the syrians will will talk to you and res- answer to you because you pay them um so it's a novel form right it's been inspired by what iran uh, did in 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 syria and um so uh, from a from a military military doctrine it has to be studied it's uh, you know like here in in Europe some people say it's 8000 jihadists it's not 8000 jihadists <laughs> uh you know it's not people who are dreaming of blowing up the, the world trade center that's not those are relatively nationalist actors uh they didn't particularly ask to to go to libya the libyans didn't ask for them uh are they good people you know no a lot of a lot of them did reprehensible things but uh it's not it's not al qaeda it's not daesh although although i'm sure uh, a certain amount of them you know if you if you grab you know 8000 people and you move them from an ugly place like a syria complex place a troubled place and then you move them, of course you're going to end up with a bunch of miners a bunch of jihadists and it's not going to be uh, immaculate obviously not and but what i'm saying is that there's a difference between saying that they committed war crimes which they did against the kurds for instance uh and did a lot of horrible things but but then again we're talking about syria right it's not the, the prettiest uh, place uh but it's incorrect to say 8000 jihadists is just absolutely incorrect from a political science science perspective and and i would like to also say that uh, haftar uh, has uh, brought in through through mm. through uh, the help of uh, wagner wagner is this uh, paramilitary uh, company uh, russian one linked to the kremlin uh they he wanted russians initially and russians were not available because they're too busy with other african theaters and it's hard to get so uh the arrangement that they came up with was basically uh through through an approval on the part of the Rus- the syrian government Uh, which has been in contact with uh, the emirates uh, this di- this dialogue between the emirates and the syrians is essential to understand this and effectively with the dynamic that has emerged uh, you know for the last six months or seven months is that now uh, wagner and some syrian actors uh, like you can think of them as uh, syrian security companies right uh, informal ones yeah in areas that are not at war typically the south of syria they hire you know 100 mercenaries here 100 mercenaries there uh pro assad uh, not not from the government forces but from f- former former militiamen and they bring him over to uh, to libya to fight how many are they uh, right now it's probably somewhere between 1000 and 2000 probably like closer to 1000 but the 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 noteworthy aspect of this particular group is that uh, it keeps growing right the 8000 is not is not a number that keeps growing but the number of syrians coming in to defend cert for instance we were talking about cert uh the number is growing up it's like uh, another plane another plane each plane is like 115 124 you know it keeps adding up uh and of course um you know if you speak to a, let's say some officials of some european countries they are shocked by the mercenaries on the, the turkish side but they would never admit the existence of the other ones obviously I think um it I think that's in- incredibly interesting and I could probably ask you a, a million other questions including about the Tebu militias and th- things like that but I I I we've actually run out of yeah, time so and I, we could I, have discussed like the Russian aspect also but yeah of, of course I mean that's uh, pretty much a third of the, of the episode mm. that uh, that could have gone to that 
but uh, Jalil uh, Hashawi, thank you very much for being on CSET and I hope to have you again soon enough. Thank you very much. Appreciate the uh, opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Bye.